just in time for summer, the folks at Epic Brewing have released a new canned cocktail, the Utah Margarita. A delicious blend of real lime and agave, the Utah Margarita is ready to drink by the river or in the park. And here's the kicker, no need to buy it at a liquor store. Pick up a six-pack of Epic Brewing's Utah Margarita at any local Harmon's or Trader Joe's, or visit Epic Brewing on State Street in downtown Salt Lake City. Here's what Salt Lake's talking about. Even if you moved here yesterday, chances are you've already learned the word inversion, which refers to the visible smog that plagues the valley in the winter. Our city's battle with air quality feels like recent history, but is it? Today's Monday, April 10th. I'm Ali Vallarta, and this is CityCast Salt Lake. Logan Mitchell, climate scientist at Utah Clean Energy. You also have a PhD in atmospheric sciences. What is the biggest myth about air quality in Salt Lake City? Well, there's a whole bunch of them. Hit me with them. Okay. One of the biggest ones is that it's all due to the refineries and the industry that's around. Most people think that because you see these smoke sacks and you see, you know, clouds of smoke coming out of them. But it turns out that, especially during our wintertime inversions, most of the air pollution that we see comes from our vehicles. Okay, wait, define inversion for anyone who hasn't yet learned this word. Okay, so an inversion is a, we call them, in the scientific community, we call them persistent cold air pools. But basically what it means is that there's a stable atmosphere. So there's colder air near the surface and there's warmer air up high. And since that colder air wants to sink, it just stays at the surface and doesn't move. And because there's this thermal stratification in the atmosphere, what happens is all of the pollutants that we emit to the air as we're burning fossil fuels, and they just stay near the surface. And there's all sorts of chemistry that happens, and the air gets really gross really quickly. Yeah, that's why in the winter it's like that very, very visible, thick... You've described it as chewy, yeah. sort of like murky looking. I mean, I remember we've had winters here where there have been police officers directing traffic because at night the inversion's so thick that it creates like a fog in the city and you actually can't see yeah. very well, which is pretty dark. And we actually get inversions every single night. They're you know, a naturally occurring phenomenon. But in the wintertime, because the sun is lower in the sky and... Frequently when we have snow on the ground, the inversions can get more intense and they can last for multiple days at a time. And that's when pollutants start to build up. In the summer, we have an inversion in the morning, but then the sun comes up, it's really warm and there's a lot of mixing. And so then everything gets moved downwind from us. But it's really in the winter, it's these persistent multi-day inversion episodes that build up the pollution. And then, you know, eventually there's a winter storm and then that will typically wash all the pollution out and we can kind of reset. But it's the time periods in between the storms in the winter when we get some of the worst air quality that we experience. Well, you said there are multiple myths about air quality in Salt Lake, so now I'm super intrigued. What are some of the other ones? The other myth that's quite prevalent is that our air quality today is worse than it's ever been and that it's continuing to get worse. And that was something that... I didn't really know about either until I started looking into the history and looking back at earlier time periods and, and looking at the data. 
you know, air quality monitoring techniques have changed over time. So we don't have a consistent data set that can go back a hundred years to look at, but there are periods of time when there were, you know, measurement campaigns and, and it's abundantly clear that our air quality today is probably better than it's been since any time since probably the 1880s. Is the 1880s when you would say Salt Lakers started becoming obsessed with outdoor air quality? That's when you start to see editorials about what they called the smoke evil, the the <laughs> really bad air pollution. And so back then they didn't talk about air pollution. They just called it smoke because you could see smoke coming out of chimneys. And so that to them was air pollution. So the terminology has changed over time. And so it was in the 80s, you know, Salt Lake, as it was becoming a bigger city, more people were living there. Back in those days, everyone was heating their homes with uh, wood fire and with coal. And so the pollution back then was getting really bad. And and also the industry was producing a lot of pollution. There were Mm -hmm. no pollution controls back then. And so that was really, really quite bad air quality back then. How were they managing it then? Or measuring it at the very least. Yeah. So, I mean, in the 1880s, they weren't doing very much, but, you know, it continued to get worse. In the winter of 1919 to 1920, the first major air quality study in the United States happened in Salt Lake. And Salt Lake was chosen because it's kind of a medium-sized city with this really persistent air quality problem. They did a ton of measurement then. And a bunch of surveys and, you know, they just did it. It was a huge project. One of the things that they did is, so one of the common ways of measuring air pollution back then was they had these things called Ringelman charts, which are just charts with different thicknesses of lines on them so that you go from being mostly transparent to uh, mostly covered if they're really thick lines. And then you would hold up these charts next to a plume of smoke coming out of a, a building oh or a house. And then it's a measure of the visual opacity of the smoke. And so if it's really oh, dense. Oh, that's dark. <laughs> what's, that is dark. What's even crazy, though, is that technique, this technique of measuring the visual opacity, it's still around. We're still using it today. If you see a, a big truck that is called mm. rolling coal, you know, they dump a bunch of fuel and it you know, spits out this huge cloud of smoke. That's a violation mm-hmm. of the visual opacity of, of air pollution. And it's the same basis by which we're seeing that those vehicles are, are, are violating the law, basically. So we've actually, what you're saying then is we've got air quality laws in this state that have been on the books for more than 100 years. Yeah, that's correct. And the, the very first air quality ordinance that was passed in Utah was passed in 1891. And that's five years before... Utah became a state. So literally, we've had air quality uh, laws on the books for the entire history of the state. Why do you think we think of this as a more recent issue? Or maybe listeners are hearing me ask that and they're like, we don't. That's just you, Allie. (laughs) But I think of air quality as being, I don't know, something we started caring about in the 80s. (laughs) I think there's a couple reasons for that. One is that the history is just not that well known. I think another reason is that since the 1940s, 1950s, California has really been leading on air quality. They've had worse air quality challenges than we've had, and they've been leading the country in terms of dealing with it through their regulatory approach. So that all of the history books about the history of air pollution talk about California, and there hasn't been very much focused at all on Utah, even though Utah has this really persistent problem and has been working on the problem, just like 
you know, other places. The third reason why I think people feel that air pollution is a bigger deal today than it is, than it has been in the past is partially because there is a federal agency. The EPA has come out and said, okay, here are the national ambient air quality standards. And these federal standards, you know, there's now a level by which you can say, okay, the air above that is unhealthy and we should not be outside breathing it. Mm. People then, it's almost like they've been given permission to state the obvious, like the air is unhealthy. (laughs) And so because there's a greater awareness of that and over time, our air quality standards have gotten tighter as we've better understood the health impacts of air pollution, the awareness of them has increased because we're mm-hmm. saying, hey, look at all of this air pollution, all of these challenges. We used to just think this was normal, but now we have somebody, you know, official saying, hey, this is unhealthy. We need to fix this. The Living Traditions Festival is back in downtown Salt Lake City, May 17th through 19th. And this is when I come alive. It is so easy to sell me on three days of Washington Square and Library Square converting to a global food court. And this festival has truly been one of my favorites for years now. Living Traditions convenes the diversity of artistic traditions, food heritage, music, and art from the many cultures that have made Utah their home. You can expect everything from live music and dance to hands-on workshops, a little shopping, Sundance film screenings, and Bohemian Brewery. There is something for the whole family, and it's free entry. Come celebrate all of the rich cultures that make up our community. Find more information on the festival and view the full program guide at livingtraditionsfestival.com or on Instagram and Facebook at slclivingtrad. We talk a lot on this show about our city's crown jewels. What are the institutions that open doors in our community and regulate its pulse? I choose Salt Lake Community College, and it is a home for incredibly focused Salt Lakers. Nearly 80% of their students work while going to school, many full-time jobs. If I could do college all over again, I would not be 33 and sitting on these damn student loans. And slick students aren't. 80% graduate with little to no student loan debt or save thousands knocking out credits before transferring to a four-year institution. Every day, Salt Lake Community College is transforming lives and communities through education. If you wanna learn something new, refine a trade, or pursue a higher degree for the first time, explore your options at slcc.edu. Study alongside hard workers, save precious money, and be one in a class of 19, not 100. Well, I'm really interested in the point you made in the beginning of our conversation that it's a myth that all of our bad air is the result of refineries and that kind of industrial pollution. Really, at this point, the big culprit is cars. When did that shift sort of happen? Like, how have we shifted into the car being the biggest culprit over the past century? In order to really understand our history of air pollution in Utah, you actually have to know a little bit about how our energy system has changed and how our different fuel mix has changed. Because cars really started to become a major phenomenon in the 1950s. 
1960s. And in those days, there were no there was no catalytic converter on the back of the cars. They were just emitting all kinds of pollutants that were really, really gross. And air pollution got really bad as soon as we started to get a bunch of cars, and especially because their pollutants were not being scrubbed in any way. So really, cars started to take over and become the dominant source of air pollution in the 50s and 60s. And then... Around that time also, I guess in 1970, that's when the EPA was created and kind of the first tier of environmental regulations were really focused on point sources, large point sources like the industries, because you can see these big smokestacks and it's like, well, that's one point source of pollution that we can go after. We can reduce a lot of pollution there. So that's the low hanging fruit. That's the easiest thing to to fix. And rather than fixing you know, millions of little engines, let's go after the one big thing that's, that's producing a lot of pollution. And so, mm-hmm. you know, industry's contribution has been getting better and better ever since then. There's been a lot of kicking and fighting environmental regulations along the way, but, you know, they have made a huge contribution um, and invested billions of dollars um, in incremental improvements in air pollution. So, and this is really key here. It's like, we're not getting to zero, but we're getting slightly better. Over time, we've been getting incrementally better with industry, and it's been true with, with vehicles as well. You know, we've gotten better catalytic converters, and we've, you know, especially in the last decade, we've gotten better fuel economy cars. In the latest version of that story, since 2017, we've uh, had our local refineries. They've been uh, processing tier three fuels, and so that's going to make our air pollution a little bit better. And so it just, it's the, it's the long trajectory of small incremental improvements that we've been seeing. Can we afford that to be our trajectory though? I mean, you are kind of an eternal optimist. I feel like whenever I talk to you, I walk away with a little bit of climate optimism, which is so important, right. but can we afford incremental change? Because we've all seen the stats on how our air quality affects I mean, pregnancies, like our life expectancy in this valley, they're quite frightening. Right. Yeah. I think that we can't afford to not continue to make progress. And that's one of the big ideas that I have come away with in looking at Utah's air quality history. Often people say that you have to choose either the environment or the economy. You can't choose both. You got to choose one. And I've realized that's just a false choice. And in fact, you need to have in mind environmental stewardship and be making progress on that in order for the economy to grow. So if our air quality was as bad as it was in 1970, nobody would live here. People would be leaving in droves immediately. And so it really illustrates the point that, you know, the fact that we have been making incremental improvements has allowed us to continue to grow and have a robust and vibrant economy. And that will be true in the future. I mean, while I say that today we have better air quality than any time since probably the 1880s, it doesn't mean that we're at the end of that road, that we can quit and say, hey, we've done a good job, we're done now, because we still have really bad air quality at times, and there's still a lot of work to be done and a lot of progress that needs to be made. I'm so interested in the history of this issue. You just finished curating a digital exhibit with the University of Utah about the historic role of Salt Lake women in advocating Mm -hmm. for clean air. What's one of the stories you found most interesting? There's a really important legacy of women leading the conversation around environmental stewardship in the state that I think is 
probably very unique to Utah. These ladies were really incredible. They just did an enormous amount of work. They did research on what the most effective policies were around the world, in the U.S. and around the world, figured out what they were, and then advocated for ordinances here locally to improve air quality. They made pamphlets about how to operate your appliances, your stove, your furnace more efficiently and pass them out to everybody in the state because they realized that they were on the front lines of dealing with this. They had to deal with, you know, back in those days, a major issue was all of the coal soot that was emitted. It would get on clothes and, and curtains and all over the inside of the house. And they had to clean all that stuff. It took enormous right. amount of work. And they also, by the way, had to take care of everyone who got sick from air quality, which was a lot of people. And mm. so they're just getting hammered on all sides because of air pollution. They, they saw the impacts to society and they're like, this needs to get fixed. We need to fix this. And so they were doing everything that they could and it was an enormous amount of work. And it's just this, I don't know, it's a, it's a really cool legacy and seeing some of the, these old photos of these women working on this and um, some of the pamphlets that they created, they're fantastic. Yeah, yeah they're, they're just so like, Hey, before the city, it's like this like gloomy pall hanging over the city. And then you have, you know, like after we, you know, do this stuff, we're going to have this beautiful sunshine and it's a vibrant place to live. And <laughs> oh, my, it was like the earliest before and after yeah. made for TV commercial. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, before you leave, I have to ask you, because, of course, you are a policy advisor. Mm -hmm. What is one policy you would implement tomorrow to make bad air in this valley a thing of the past? We need to accelerate the adoption of electric vehicles here as fast as we can, because that's going to have the biggest impact, because that's the biggest source of our pollution in the wintertime. They're ready for prime time. There's a bunch of other states that are far ahead of us in terms of electric vehicle adoption and other countries that are light years ahead of us. So we've got a long ways to go. And as we start to roll out more electric vehicles, our air quality is going to improve dramatically. We saw this during the initial phase of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, during the initial lockdown phase, you know, everyone stayed at home. And yeah. there were something like on the order of half the cars on the road. And I looked at the data during that time period, and you could immediately see an improvement in air quality that's proportional to the number of cars on the road. So you saw a 50% reduction in a whole bunch of pollutants. And that's what's going to happen. I mean, that's just a, a, a picture of our future. It's going to happen. Like We're going to get there someday. Um, I don't know if it's going to be in 10 years or five years. It's really a question for everyone who lives here. Like, are you going to tell your policymakers, hey, we want to get there faster. We need more incentives right. or whatever, whatever the option is. Figure it out and let's, let's get this thing accelerated so that we can have cleaner air sooner. Well, wait, but how, yeah, how do you locally accelerate the adoption of the electric car? Because we've seen federal subsidies and things like this, but what kind of measures are available to local policymakers? Yeah, there's, there's a bunch of challenges. One particular challenge right now is... Uh, if you live in an apartment building, where do you charge your car? How do you how do you Amen. how do, how yeah, do you work with me. that? Um, so we need to have apartment buildings and multifamily housing um, set aside parking spots that have charging. We need to make it more accessible for folks that live in apartment buildings. That's just one uh, policy that that needs to be in place. And, and actually, the 
the Salt Lake uh, City Council is actually working on an ordinance about that right now. So like these conversations are happening, um, but they need to be happening throughout the state, not just in Salt Lake. Listen, when we have big ideas for the legislature, they often tell us, well, we it's an either or, right? So either an investment in more electric cars on the road or a deeper investment in public transit. Yeah, I, th- I think the easy thing to say is it's a false choice in mm. that we can do we can walk and chew gum. And <laughs> the other thing that I think is really important to understand where we're at today is there's an energy revolution taking place, whether we like it or not. And, you know, Utah has traditionally been an energy state and we have a choice today. If, if we're going to really participate in that, you know, we need to look at where the ball's going and try to get there first because there's an enormous amount of market share that's on the table up for grabs right now. And, and if we just sit back and, and we're really focused on, you know, protecting industries of the past, that's really not going to cut it. Utah's got a few really good things going for it. Um, you know, we've got some really innovative projects that are happening, advanced geothermal, and we have enormous uh, resource as well. We have wonderful sunlight, uh, sun yeah. and, and solar resource. And so we could really be taking advantage of, of these opportunities much more. And we'll, we'll see how it plays out. Dr. Logan Mitchell, climate scientist at Utah Clean Energy. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to chat with you. If air quality in this valley is something you'd like to keep an eye on, I don't blame you. A good place to get daily updates is air.utah.gov. Their thermometer will let you know the ozone levels as well as how much particulate matter or pollution is in the air. That stuff is called PM 2.5. If it's orange, take caution. If it's red, honestly, find an indoor activity. But if it's green, well, then as we say in Utah, send it. That's all for us today here on CityCast Salt Lake. We will be back tomorrow morning with more from around this city. Bye.